This is deep dish, right? Yeah, well, let's get deep. So, so I'm, I'm going deep on both sides. Lindsay, welcome to the platform. How you doing? So good. Thank you so much for having me. No, I'm excited about this conversation and just one kudos to you, a whole bouquet of flowers to you for just all the work mm -hmm. um, and effort and energy and thoughtfulness that you have put into our community here mm -hmm. in Nashville. And so I don't know how many people officially just randomly thank you, <laughs> but I want to thank you because um, I know it's not easy. Uh, I know that you don't wake up every day just ready to go all the time, you know, you know. And so um, a bouquet of flowers to you and just mm -hmm. all the work that you have done, going to continue to do to help build just a better Nashville and better communities for all of us who's living here. And just thank you. Mm. Well, thank you for saying that. We do it together, right? We do it in community. Yeah, so. for sure. Yeah. For, for sure. Um, street traveling activist, nonprofit leader, mom. <laughs> <laughs> Another one coming. Another one coming. Uh, congratulations on that. And just, you know, being a woman <laughs> in the South, in Tennessee. Um, grew up in South Carolina. Take us through that process of, like, growing up in South Carolina and kind of maybe what motivated or moved you to do the work that you're doing today. So I grew up in the foothills of South Carolina. Um, we have a small airport, Greenville Spartanburg. Some people have heard of it. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a very small town, very conservative church, um, and it was very close-minded. Mm. It was a community that took care of each other really well if the each other part looked like us, right? right? Or um, acted like us. Um, and when they didn't, there was a lot of exclusion. Mm. Um, so I learned both community care and community exclusion from the community I grew up in. Um, at church, basically, and um, at some point, I knew I had to get out. <laughs> it was probably <laughs> late in high school. Um, I um, grew up in a Church of Christ community. Um, okay. I'm not recovering, even though I have deep respect for some people in that community still, and the community itself. Um, I'm in recovery, and I, um, you know, I knew about Lipscomb in Nashville. I had visited Nashville before. And something about the bigger city, the more open-mindedness, it just called to me. And, right. you know, I was part of, um, in my family, we had folks who had experienced incarceration, who had experienced homelessness, experienced severe mental health issues, and devastating substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. So that was something that was really familiar to me. And I really wanted to get out of that, run from that kind of past. Um, and I always grew up thinking that those kind of issues were all about personal choices, right? Mm -hmm. That's what society, that's what school, education, everything right. kind of instilled in me. But when I came to Nashville and started seeing some bigger picture things in the city and started getting a liberal arts education um, and understanding the way systemic poverty works mm -hmm. and then rereading some of the prophets in my own tradition of faith um, and being like, they're badasses. Oh my God. <laughs> Why don't we talk about them in church, right? Right. <laughs> we talked about what not to do in church a lot, not <laughs> the radical prophets. So, um, so that kind of shifted things for me, right? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, we could talk more about that, but those kind of things moving inside of me and then getting, falling in with, I'll say, the right and wrong group of people, like the Nashville Homeless Power Project here accidentally, they really right. they really blew up in my mind and heart. And so 
I want to pivot back to like when you was in high school, yeah. right? How did you know? Because, you know, most of us grew up in, you know, our community bubbles and stuff. And I think still today, one of the most divided racially places in our country is church. Yes. You know, still, you know, um, what does it say? Like 12 noon on a Sunday, look around, you can kind of tell, tell America where we still are, right? So I wonder, um, how did you know, like, this is not right? Um, some doesn't feel right and not kind of be indoctrinated with those same type of perspectives and thoughts um, around just diversity and inclusion and, 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 and welcoming people that may not look like you. I mean, I was lucky in that I had a mom that really encouraged us to be critical thinkers, wow. really encouraged us to ask questions, really encouraged us to think critically. And then I had a good public um, education. I went to public schools. Um, I remember in second grade being our public school expanded. We were in this little trailer learning and I did my report on Martin Luther King Jr. Right. That was the first time I really remember learning about him. But those kind of things were like seeds planted, mm -hmm. right? Critical thinking, the things I was learning in public school. Um, and the radical parts of faith that really are there in every tradition under some of the more dogmatic stuff, right. um, potentially, or maybe, yeah, we could think about it even differently than that. But those seeds really grew and flourished, especially when I got here to Nashville. Um, speaking of your parents, I was going to, I was going to like see if they was one of the like main kind of reasons how you were able to not to be all the way influenced by the church because I'm assuming like this this was also the church that their families and they, they grew up in as well yeah. and so did they did they also did they also have some of that uh, maybe we don't welcome them too kind of things or oh, did yeah. they have more like kind of openness or was it depends it depended and you okay. know my mom and dad were different so my dad was an elder in the church of christ and very very true to those teachings mm -hmm. and um and you know an amazing human being love him so much not as open-minded he's coming around a lot right now right. you know my mom is much more open-minded and has had different experiences in her life so and i think you know my mom was a woman in the churches of christ too <laughs> right when you are excluded and silenced yourself mm. you have a very different very different experience than you do as a white man in right um in the southern church right so. um how did your relationship start to change between those that you grew up with uh, whether it's friends or family or, you know, peers or what have you, as you started to shift it mentally away from maybe some of the things they were indoctrinated to just purely through church? Well, I remember, um, you know, there was a big shift and it took place for me when I came to Nashville College. But I remember when um, Andrew, my husband and partner, and I got married, we chose to do wedding vows that were mutual instead of like that kind of more traditional use wife submit to your husband. Right. And I remember some of the people from our church who came to Nashville for the wedding after the ceremony, they were like, well, that was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> they like made this big deal to make sure we knew how interesting that ceremony was. And so... Um, and then, you know, they invited um, me to church in South Carolina to speak, um, but they couldn't have me speak on a Sunday from the pulpit because I was a woman. So they had a special mm -hmm. breakfast. 
but then they didn't invite us back to speak again. <laughs> so there were differences, and they started emerging um, in those years. Uh, interesting differences. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, because I, because I, like, when I talk to folks about these things, especially folks that they that grow up in just like culture and family that are so true to these traditional ways, when they tend to like break away, it, it tends to like fracture some relationships sometimes because like, no, you shouldn't be doing that. This is not the right way, especially when it's coming from a religious belief or morals and values that is backed by what would be absolute power mm-hmm. um, to them and in, in how they are interpreting particular texts or scriptures. Yes. And so uh, I always find it fascinating and just curious, like, what was the breakaway point? Like, how did that switch go off yes. in people's mind? And like, oh, something ain't right here. <laughs> well, I did get accused of being one of my mom's friend, church friends, called my mom up um, and was like, Lindsay's a socialist. <laughs> you, I'm concerned about her. She's a socialist. <laughs> I mean, you know, not going to say that's too wrong, but, um, but like, but at that point, you know, you know, what happened too is during those years, especially, and after the, especially after the nineties, right, there's emerging with some conservative religions mm-hmm. and the moral majority and the right. And that was happening too. Right. So she saw the term social justice that I was participating here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And she was listening to Glenn Beck and she was like, socialism. <laughs> well, let's actually talk about socialism in the Bible or right. something if you really want to get into things. Um, and Acts chapter 2 and all this other stuff. But anyway, um, so yeah, it was an interesting. It's been interesting. Right. Um, interesting. I'm curious, what does social justice mean to you? Since we like, since like, I'm ready to just kind of get into it. But Let's like, get into but it. But like, what does that, what does that mean to you? You know, the language I've used has shifted over the years. Um, I think I used to gravitate toward social, economic, and racial justice, mm-hmm. and I still do gravitate toward that language. But for me, there's even a bigger kind of um, horizon now to work towards, which is collective liberation. Mm. And that's a term that feels, that resonates the most deeply with me. So even though I'm in the housing justice world and work, that's in the anti-criminalization work, right? Um, Which merges into so many other works. Mm -hmm. The bigger picture that we're working for is collective liberation, which is a world where everyone is free from all the chains that are holding them back, right. from all the inequalities that are currently plaguing our right. systems and our present. Interesting. And that sounds great. Um, unfortunately, what our country has done specifically mm-hmm. is this race thing, right? Yes. Which I believe has restricted a lot of that Liber- collective liberation that I think we all know, like we all want everyone to live like in an equitable sense. Yeah. But I I think race has restricted us so much from multicultural organizing mm. uh, specifically because it's like we know it's it's all of us, but then it's like us and them type of mix. And then it's it's like they Okay, we're gonna we're gonna support the 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 ask of the agenda of this particular group mm. over this particular like and if and it, then it pits people together and a lot of that um, I think heavily is everything else over here kind of get elevated and then anti blackness 
um, a lot a lot of times um from like from the lens that i see it but i think like just having the idea of understanding like social justice is liberation it's a collective liberation for all like is what we should be like kind of thinking about right but you Um, can't you're so right that if mm -hmm. you start erasing some of the racial issues mm-hmm. and other issues that have been so crucial to creating the injustice and equities <laughs> that we have, then that's a huge issue too. Right. So, so yeah. What, like, as a white woman, what has been maybe some of you, like the growing mm. um, that you have been able to do, especially getting into the social justice space? Yes. Um, because we all got to go through our growing pains, you know, whether that's, oh, we taking up too much space and not knowing, uh, we're talking too much and not knowing, doing too much talking and not enough listening, whatever it may be. We all, if you if you started from the, we've all done it at some point in some type of level. <laughs> and so I'm curious, like, what was some of, like, those stories or moments where you noticed mm-hmm. or somebody, you know, came and said, hey, you know, think you kind of you know taking up too much space or maybe you you could Mm. you could be doing more harm than good unintentionally um you have any of those moments that you just specifically remember absolutely i mean one comes to mind when um when oh my gosh when mike brown um Mm. was his murder was handed the non-indictment verdict right Mm -hmm. so and um the whole community here just there was just this rage. And a lot of our friends who were organizing, this is before Black Lives um, Matter had a chapter in Nashville. So this is the grassroots group that is growing from the mobilizations that happened after Trayvon, um, Martin and others were murdered. Um, So I remember reaching out to some of my organizer friends in the black community and being like, what do you need? And they were like, first of all, show up. Mm-hmm. Second of all, keep all the white people off the mic. <laughs> Third of all, de-escalate all the drunk-ass people on Broadway <laughs> who are going to be like giving us hell, keep right. us buffered. Right. But keep white people off the mic and mm. um, and like organize your people. Right. That was such a big that was such a big learning thing for me because um, the voices that we needed to hear were all the voices that had been silenced right. and literally, again, murdered. There are so many people in Tennessee and Nashville right. who have been murdered by police right. brutality right. Um, and have been impacted by um, racist policing. Mm-hmm. So, um, and really understanding, really understanding that, you know, like as someone who's interested in anti-racist organizing and racial justice and this broader work, um, I don't need to just know all the amazing black people who have worked for this work. I need to know the white folks who have done it too and study how they have organized their people. Learning about Ann Braden, thinking about John Brown, so many others, learning that kind of history. There were so many like rad Quaker abolitionists, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That I've learned about who are white organizing, um, for the abolition of slavery that we are now kind of moving toward as Mm -hmm. new abolitionists today, um, working for an abolition of um, policing as it currently stands in the incarceration system. So learning about their stories too has really um, been important for me as a white um, 
comrade in the work. Yeah. Um, but, but really taking the lead, and I have to do my own work. I was raised by people, white people in South Carolina who kicked black shareholders off their land mm. to develop it. Mm. That is part of my history. Mm. And I have to understand that and grapple with it and um, make reparations wherever I can, talk to my family, like figure out what we can do. Right. That is work that I have to do. So mm. I'm learning that more and more. But I'm really grateful for, I mean, there. anytime you're in organizing work, you will make a misstep. Yeah. And those have happened. And I'm just so grateful for the friends that have held me accountable and also... Um, also seeing the deep commitment right. um, it's and grace. love. It's grace. It's some grace. Yeah, yeah, that really keeps us so rooted together right. to be working for this. Because uh, we are stronger together, right? Yeah, um, for sure. When we're doing it, the work and the ways that it needs to be done. Um, what did that pushback look like? When, especially <laughs> when you may be trying to organize, inform, educate um white friends, peers, associates, was there any pushback like, um, I don't think anything is wrong. I, I, you know, oh, have you ever experienced that? Absolutely. And people talking about riots or something, using mm-hmm. riot language mm-hmm. to discuss like peaceful protests after, mm-hmm. again, like police have murdered, mm-hmm. you know, people. So it's really about educating them about language. I can't tell you how many Oh, Facebook, right? Like social media is so hard. But how many personal messages I would send to people and be like, I just want to like share that like, I don't, the way you're talking about this, <laughs> like, let's talk about that. You know, you really have to, What one of the things I've tried to do and model wherever I can is that um, what Serge talks about, right? Showing up for racial justice, um, calling in, mm-hmm. not just calling out, and right. not just calling mm. out to alienate people and shame them and show how right you are and how wrong they are. Because there's a bump that you get, right, from being righteous and being like, you're wrong, this is terrible. But if you do the work to call in, that can really be transformative. That's what people have done for me. Right. Um, and that's what what I want to keep doing to call people into this work. So. And I and I think um, that's what we need to do more of. Because it's easy to say, oh, you're wrong. But I think it's more impactful and powerful if you can invite that yeah. person in just to even understand their perspective and where that may be coming from. Yeah. Because you never know. We all have our, our upbringings. We all have things that we just don't know how this has influenced us. You know, uh, whether it may be with policing, housing, whatever. Mm. If a police saves your life and you're saying, I don't want to defund the police, maybe that may make some sense. Yeah. But maybe I don't know the police saves your life part. I just know that you don't want to defund the police. But then if I know, oh, you got saved by some, like, oh, okay, I, you have a different type of commitment and attachment to that service. Yeah. And so um, I love that idea. Don't call out, call in. Yeah, That's a whenever t-shirt. you can. Yes. That's a t-shirt. Yes. And there is a time to call out. Let me just say, like, oh, there yeah. is a time. I'm all about that. When you've done your work or when you're speaking truth to power, right. there is a time to do that. But relationally. Yeah. And, like, defund the police, right? A lot of people don't realize that we're here today in the mass incarceration world because in the 80s, they Reagan's administration mm-hmm. chose to gut federal funding for housing, to gut social safety net programs. Mm-hmm. 
the war on drugs was going full speed. They mm. invested in broken, broken windows policing in the 90s, right? right? Like all these things happened and we defunded communities right. and housing while we funded police and prisons. Right. So like when we talk about <laughs> defund, we're not talking about this radical idea. Right. We're talking about swinging the pendulum back to funding the community things that keep us all safe. Right. Like education and housing. Right. So, yeah, um, so there's some education elements that you get to do when you call into. What um, I had I had the pleasure of speaking to Theta Murphy on here. Uh, I love her. <laughs> true, true abolitionist, right? So and, wonderful. And so, what does that mean to you when you say I'm 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 for abolishment of incarceration, uh, policing? Um, and the reason I ask, what does that mean? Because, um. What I what I hear people talking about, like specifically like prison and jail, um, I think we just have this infatuation with punishment in this country and, yes. and harm, right? And not to say people shouldn't be held accountable, um, but they're still human beings, right? Um, and I'm still even toying with this personally myself. It's like, it's like, is do. Am I, do I believe that we don't need prisons and jails, or do I believe that it needs to look like something different, um, where people can really rehabilitate and become better um, community members because 95% of these folks are coming home, right? Yeah. And so what does that mean for you? Um, does that mean just get rid of prisons and jails and come off with something else, or like, tell me? <laughs> You know, I'm still learning what it means to me. So, um, so abolition has been something that I've always been interested in, especially after seeing how the criminal just—I can't, you can't call it criminal justice—how the criminal legal system um, has affected our friends on the streets, mm -hmm. and I've seen that in the black community here too, and in the brown community, and so many other communities. Um, so, so for me, the idea of abolition, people. People who were abolitionists mm -hmm. during the time of slavery were told that it's never going to happen. Right. They were told that slavery is one of the pillars of the economic systems, <laughs> right, of our country. They were told it's never going to happen. Right. But it's this imagination that things can be different and that mm -hmm. another world is possible. Mm -hmm. And there are so many amazing thinkers doing, encouraging people to think about what this looks like on small scale. Miriam Kaba is phenomenal. Um, and... There's so many people I'm learning from, but it really does look like on the micro level and, and imagining what this could look like on the macro level, right. starting to practice transformative justice instead of punishment, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. in our own relationships, mm -hmm. in our own organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and when we are wronged, um, how can we think about what could transform these moments instead of just leaning on that? Biblically, you know what that is? Radical love. It truly is. It and, truly is. And I'm trying to practice that. Like I'm I, because I think restorative justice and radical love are the same. Yeah. Personally. Um and I I and I know I have to start with it because I get impulses when yeah. I'm hurt <laughs> and when some somebody does something to me, like I shouldn't automatically be thinking like I want to harm them or I want them to suffer, right? So how do I fix that internally? And where does that come from? Well, you grew up in a country that like perpetuates and conditions you and tell you from the time you in kindergarten to adulthood, like punishment is the way to correct things. 100%. And you experience that as a corrective, right? <laughs> right. So like, I mean, I'm a student of history and I understand 
some of the ways we got to having a country entrenched in mass homelessness mm -hmm. and uh, like white supremacy, right? right? So if these things can be created and manufactured and implemented on such a wide scale, then they can also be dismantled and new things can be put in place. Mm -hmm. I can imagine a city where everyone has housing. Mm -hmm. I can imagine a country that funds social services and housing instead of cages, right? right? And if we can start imagining that and practicing some of those things on a small level and reading with others, studying with others, like working with others to think about what this could look like, mm -hmm. like, you know, the people's budget group here. Um, mm -hmm. We've been a part of that at Open Table Nashville, um, really to say, why is Metro Nashville, why is our council, why is our, so much of our tax money going to policing right. when so much of it is steeped in racism and social right. profiling right. when we have underfunded schools, right. when we have, we're deep in an affordable, right. mired in an affordable housing crisis, right? right? We want our money to go toward housing and right. education and community safety. Um, in the form of mental health care. Things that Not should policing. divert yes. people from being in the criminal legal system. Yes. So those kind of things <laughs> are abolitionists, so Seems right? so simple. <laughs> those kind of things are seeds of this world yeah. that we could create together. And I'm an idealist. Yeah, yeah no. Like, I believe that those things are possible. Not even possible. Like, we have the proof and stats. Yes. Like, for people who are not, like, idealists and if you want to be a you want to be a realist there's the stats to yes. prove it like people who have housing education are less likely to health care are less likely to end up in jail or prison we, we just know that yeah. <laughs> that's like that's not nothing we just like fetishizing about like we know that and so when we have systems perpetuating yes these acts that are going to continue not to put people in housing and give them great education and, and less likely have them being funneled in a criminal legal system. Um, yeah, it's mm -hmm. kind of perplexing, really perplexing um, to think about. And yeah, it's, it's, yeah. yeah. And it's more expensive to lock people in cages mm -hmm. than it literally is to house them, mm -hmm. than it literally is to provide support services around them. So there's the educate, you're right, the stats are there, the research is there. We've got to change hearts and minds right. and systems, right? right? So so we're working toward that on whatever scale we can, um, but also trying to practice it within ourselves, right? Um, right? That transformative mm -hmm. justice, that restorative justice, right. and that like spirit of abolition. Let's talk about the unhoused, mm. right? Um, it's a lot of the work that Open Table does um, that you yourself do on so many different levels. Just it's not a profession of like you're personally entrenched um, in our community that doesn't have housing. Mm. And so I, I want to break this down of um, what does it mean to be unhoused? Um because I, I I've just recently started using unhoused instead of homelessness. Um, just I just you know they just unhoused you know. Um, uh, shout out to the contributor too. Just throw that plug so in there. Much. Love the contributor. <laughs> Me too. Um, 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 but can you can you just break that down for us and 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 what that means and what that looks like uh, for our unhoused neighbors here in Nashville. You know, what I've learned from my friends on the streets, um, 
And, you know, you know, Andrew and I have experienced displacement um, from um, one of our apartments we rented being flipped into an Airbnb, but we also experienced a tornado. Mm -hmm. And those were very temporary stints of mm -hmm. displacement. But even personally in those tiny little moments, you have the bottom fall out for you. Mm -hmm. There's no stability. You're in survival mode. You can't think clearly because everything is bent on where are we going to stay? What are we going to do with our stuff? Like, how are we going to keep what we can and have and stay together? Um, what I've learned from my friends on the streets is that it's so different for every single person that experiences it. Mm -hmm. um, but I have a lot of friends that prefer, I mean, I was talking to, I had a group downtown with one of my co, my friends on the streets, um, co-leads, Terry. We had a group on, downtown yesterday um, of students and they were, we were talking to somebody and a friend came up, Tim, on the streets and he was like, it's not homeless, it's houseless. We don't have housing. That's the thing that mm. unites us. But, um, you know, what I've learned is it's incredibly different for every person. There's always, from what we see, this like thread of trauma that runs through a lot of experiences of being houseless and being displaced. Um, we've seen, oh my gosh, so so much survival mode, right? When, when you don't have that stable place to land, mm -hmm. when you don't have housing, when you don't have safety, like even when you're staying at the shelters here, right? Mm -hmm. You're packed in like animals into big rooms often mm -hmm. um, that are incredibly crowded. You're treated like you're on a prison schedule. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so dehumanizing. Every, so many of the elements of being without housing, especially as you go longer and longer and longer, are so dehumanizing. Um, but it's just such a radically different experience for everybody. Some We've seen so many people um, turn to different coping mechanisms to make it through. Mm -hmm. When you don't have support, when you don't have, um, when you don't have community, when you don't have access to healthcare or meds or anything, mm -hmm. um, and you're being harassed every day, you're mm -hmm. being spit on by people who are passing you or mm -hmm. just ignored and feeling invisible. Um, how do you keep? How do you keep going? Right. right? So there's incredible struggles that people face but what i've also seen is not only the need and like dehumanization that people face but also the incredible community that comes together on the streets and i don't want to use the word resilience too much because i feel like when people focus too much on individual resilience it's saying you know that person should really be able to rebound from all they've struggled with. And it, take, it puts the onus on the person instead of the community to right. make things better. But there's still so much like leadership on the streets, strengths on the streets, people surviving and taking care of each other in ways that are more radical than most of our churches, synagogues, and temples of faith communities are doing. Yeah. Um, if you think about, like I have a pantry at home that's filled with food. And if I give some of my neighbors some food out of that from time to time when they're struggling, that's that's giving out of what I like an right. abundance. Our friends at the camps give out of their poverty and need all the time, sharing what they have, the clothes off their back with mm -hmm. their friends. 
Um, so there's just so much, there's still so much beauty um, in life. Right. Being without housing, though, in America does not need to happen, and it can totally put people in subhuman living conditions. We see people that have built out, like, whole, like, whole sheds. They've got generators. Like, they've built something off the grid, and they're living well. Mm -hmm. There's so much, um, there's so much ingenuity. We've also found um, elderly folks with severe disabilities, severe health issues, trying to survive a winter in an old refrigerator box, mm. like, under a bridge incredible need like with frostbitten feet like we have people dismembered every every winter every mm. summer by um by living in the elements right um literally i have friends that have lost eyes because of medical oversights friends that have mm. lost legs because of frostbite um and and fingers and um so it's just literally people are being dismembered in the shadows of all the progress of nashville right right and still there is strength and resilience and leadership and love and um, things that we admire. So it's just very complex. Yeah. Barriers. What I've realized is that <laughs> I feel like we have services a lot of times that, mm -hmm. that create barriers to help people. Or mm -hmm. to build with people, right? Whether it's you have to have an email address or you have to have Wi-Fi or you have to have some type of technology. Like it's, I feel like the, the, the services that our systems have put in place are also barriers a lot of times. And so I wonder how do you all try to navigate some of those barriers for um, the houseless uh, that you all serve on the street? There are, you said it so well, there are so many barriers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and we're creating more barriers. Our whole state just passed a law that makes it a felony to sleep on public property across mm -hmm. the state. Let's talk about creating a barrier, giving right. people a felony for literally existing when there's not enough shelter beds or housing right. beds. That keeps people out of jobs. It keeps right. people out of housing opportunities. So not only do said, we No, try... no, no, we're not going to put you in a home. We're going to give you a felony where it actually makes it even harder for you harder to apply for, you. For, a, for, for, for a residence. This, this bill came from people, from it's legislators crazy. in Cookville and Sparta who were seeing more people on the streets because of the pandemic, right? And they're like, we want them off the streets. And we're like, this is keeping them on the streets. If you want them off the streets, fund outreach, fund housing, fund all like living wage jobs. Oh my God. Um, you know, right to work state, whatever. But, um, so, so gosh, I could go on a whole sentence about that. Maybe we will, but, um, barriers, not only are we trying to advocate with people mm -hmm. on individual barriers they may have, we do ex we help people get expungements, right? Mm -hmm. We people that haven't had their documents for decades because they were born on a military base in Japan, we try to help them get those documents so they can unlock doors to public housing and mm -hmm. things like that. We're also trying to dismantle the bigger barriers that do exist, like the laws that criminalize folks. Right. 
we have to do expungement so often because most of our friends on the streets who are at the point of trying to get housing and they've been unhoused for you know a few years they've got trespassing charges they've got obstructing the passageway charges we've got to get that off mm -hmm. so we can make them more appealing for housing and employment right how's the communication between you and open table with our um, fine officers of um, MNPD <laughs> uh, about like about understanding about understanding criminalizing homelessness right or houselessness um, do they share similar sentiments are they like no we're just throwing everybody in jail that we can pick up and find um, don't see how it benefits them personally outside of like financially and they can say hey budgetary wise but what's that communication what are those talks like is there communication so i wouldn't say we're super close the metro <laughs> is not a big fan of open table nashville when it comes to the mayor's office or mmpd really um you know we are privately funded and we are i would say That's the cool. only if not one of the only uh, homeless organization like service providing organizations we also do advocacy and organizing but we're one of the only um, service providers that doesn't that's willing to speak out we have helped wow. campsites organize when metro is trying to shut them down uh, like when the mayor's office is trying to shut them down, like most recently jefferson street bridge right, right. we help those residents organize and it stayed open for another year until they finally shut it down so talk about talk about, talk about, talk about. The mayor just, he just, hold on, let me make sure. I'm, I'm, He's not a huge I'm just, I'm just making sure I want to compartmentalize this right. If I'm not mistaken, the mayor's office, the mayor, they just got a, like, independent housing, like, agency department thing, right? Yeah. And they don't want to talk and be in communication with open table wouldn't say we're their first place to go <laughs> <laughs> i'm like i i feel like if that's the core issue of addressing those who are unhoused or just housing the housing crisis right like it seemed like that even like haters will love us you know but like clearly like we're bringing issues to the table that exist that the, this new housing department needs to be aware of to try to remedy the situation. We're working with the housing department. Okay. So we're cool with them. Okay, 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 cool. <laughs> they cool. like us. We talk. We're working together. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, um, you know, with MNPD here, um, you know, we, we've been a part of the people's budget. They mm -hmm. are aware of that. Um, right. We have talked about pouring more money into the community instead of policing. But with, you know, we really try to play an educational role and an advocacy role mm -hmm. when it comes to policing um, and police interactions with our friends on the streets. Right. So we're trying to, um, we, we have actually also, one of the trends in Nashville and outreach groups and service providers has been to add police. Mm -hmm. There's a new quality of life team mm -hmm. and the Nashville police precincts. And um, they work with outreach workers to go into encampments. Mm. We are not a huge fan of that practice as people who believe in trauma-informed care right. um, and harm reduction. Um, people who are disproportionately impacted by policing shouldn't need to get help through those same people. They should right. have other people without badges and firearms on right. them. 
right. to be able to approach and build trust outside of that. Right. Um, so, so we've actually been advocating for police to be removed from some of those outreach units and only engage when absolutely necessary, if right. absolutely necessary. Right. We don't have to call the police that much because we we do trainings in de-escalation and you know trauma-informed de-escalation and other and, things. And I and I think. I think that's where the community education piece comes in because a lot of times that's all we know is call nine one one, right? We don't we don't know any other service um, to really come and support a situation to de-escalate it that that really doesn't need policing. Yes. And I say this, like I don't believe in the such thing of when police come, de-escalation exists. Personally, I feel like because I think we all we all triggered in some way by police, and I think if anything, it heightens the situation. Because people are nervous. You, you just don't know. Like, police show up, like, you just may feel guilty. You ain't even did anything. And now you're panicked. Like, Power it's, imbalance yeah. is so extreme. Yeah. And so, and, and, yeah. And, yeah, they're not. I, I, can't, I forgot the number of hours they even trained in, like, real de-escalation, especially with, like, like mental health type of crises and yeah. things like that. It's like, you know, but, hey, it is. It We just... You know, and I know, I understand that at the moment, more people want policing than they don't want it. And I think that's because we don't know what the alternative looks like. Exactly. Um, but it's like, do we have to have them involved in every kind of fraction of our lives? You know, from school to, you know, just trying to just be you know, um, and navigate, just, just navigate them in their presence because they take up all the space once they arrive. It ain't no other space. It's police. It's, it's police space. And it can, it can go left mm. or right really quickly. In um, devastating in ways. In devastating ways. Um, and so I can only imagine, you know, for a, you know, a, a tent camp community, which everybody's just living their, their life that they have and just and, and getting that kind of disrupted and dismantled because like of this new law yeah. <laughs> um and they're not hurting anybody yeah that's the thing like you're not they're not who are they hurting yeah so <sighs> property values no <laughs> their property values in nashville are fine well, like, well but that's what you know, they were trying to sell the lot next to the Jefferson Street Bridge Camp. Uh -huh. The state was trying to sell the lot next to the Jefferson Street Bridge Camp. And that's one of the reasons they shut it down, right? One of the reasons. So, like, like I know when I was working for the contributor, we would get letters um, saying that, hey, they <laughs> believe it or not, there's community members that don't want contributor vendors, mm -hmm. you know, selling the paper and making money so they can have access to uh, EBT, um, housing, and all those things that the income allows them to be eligible for, right? Is it the same way kind of with Open Table? Do you have people that don't want the Open Table doing the work to help those that are, you know, houseless in our community? Is, or is it subliminal? Is it just straight out just hate mail? <laughs> what does that look like? We, um, the, you know, the group that's targeted us the most lately is Reclaim Brookmead. <laughs> so, <laughs> Reclaim it. <laughs> so, 
Um, I mean, there's there's haters out there for us for sure. Um, you know what they say: if you ain't got no haters, you ain't popping. Well, that's what they say. In <laughs> Metro and in Brookmead, <laughs> apparently, <laughs> so in West Nashville. But um, but yeah, I mean, we try to work with everybody we can, and we try to um, build bridges wherever we can. But we also try to be real about the harm that's been done and. You can't tell me that the officers that are coming in to close camps and to enforce, be the enforcement arm of the state um, and of private property and put all these things before human lives are also there to build the trust and care for. And, you know, it's just there's a conflict of interest there. I had so. to I had to Google this reclaim Brookmead Park. Oh. So this is who they are. I had I have to read this so people can really understand the context. Okay. We are a grassroots, nonprofit, nonpartisan organization for the sole purpose of reclaiming Brookmead Park from the homeless camp so taxpayers from Davidson County can enjoy this beautiful space of the people living there and can be compassionately housed and helped. Sounds nice. <laughs> but it's Reclaim Brookmead Park. That's 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 what they have on their website. And then of course they, you know, got all of these great pictures of, you know, the housing camps of, you know, showing is how people who are unhoused live and have to live. Um, and it's a great, wonderful police officer in the picture looking, you know, poetically. Yeah, they're, they're tight. In the, in the view. So, yeah, I'm going to have to invite know, them on here. Oh. Talk, <laughs> let's talk about let's, let's talk. I want to so, talk about it. I want to well, understand. Here's the, here's the thing. The news interviews them all the time. They mm. come to public meetings all the time. They're really great at talking. Guess who was the only group to testify for the bill that made oh. it a felony? Oh, Brooke, to, the Brookmead. Yeah, so they say, we want care, we want housing, we want compassion. Mm. And then they lobby for the very criminalization tactic. Tennessee has the harshest criminalization mm. law in the nation, making wow. it a felony to camp on public space. They lobbied for it. So they'll say whatever they want to come off well. But look at their actions and right. look at the vile stuff their Facebook accounts views, and it's pretty. It's been incredibly toxic to um, to community education on um, who people that are experiencing houselessness and homelessness really are. Mm -hmm. How does something like that get passed? Like, I'll tell you how it gets passed. It gets passed because we shut it down the first year in committee. Okay. 2021, we, we worked with the contributor and a couple mm -hmm. others, and we shut it down. This year, it came back up at the end of the session, and we mobilized. We mobilized Nashville. We mobilized Knoxville, Memphis, Chattanooga, others, people in Murfreesboro. But in Tennessee, you can't just mobilize the blue areas. Right, if you're them. not doing mobilization in the rural areas, mm -hmm. in the rural counties, then you can't win right. on the legislative end. So that's yeah. where we're moving as Open Table Nashville. We're, we're moving to do advocacy on a, and community organizing and coalition building on a statewide level now and not just locally because we have to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Nashville is an interesting place to live in with the congressional maps being changed. Yes. And then with the Republicans at the moment having a supermajority yes. at the state legislature. And pretty much they can pass anything they want to pass <laughs> at this it's point. It's so divided. Yeah. Damn, so we've got to organize, and that's yeah. where we're moving, and that's what we're shifting to um, right now. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some successes. Successes. Absolutely. Um, about if you can give us a story or two 
of some successes of yes. like you just seen like coming in and just working with a community member that has been houseless and seeing them evolve and, and transform and be able to get into housing and how that has significantly changed their life or their family's life um, during that process. So can I give you two? You can give me quick? two, three, okay. four. How many? We, we here for it. Uh, okay. So the actually the first one comes to mind is somebody that um, I got an update about this week. Um, so back in 2008, I just started doing this work and um, fell, um, fell in with the wrong crowd at Tent City. <laughs> I met this guy <laughs> named Papa Smurf, and I write about him and praying with our feet. Um, but Papa Smurf, and I knew him for six years. He was this radical like hospitality provider. He was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. Um, he had survived incredible childhood trauma, right? Um, but it was six years of building a relationship with him before he was willing to really talk about his family mm. in upstate New York, what had happened to him in his life, and how he was medicating some of his trauma that he experienced um, with substances and actually willing to address that. It took us six years of relationship building. Anybody would dismiss somebody like Smurf as living in a camp and beyond all of that. Today, he is reunited with his family in upstate New York. He, his daughters are calling him dad. He wow. is a caregiver for his mom. Wow. Um, he has been sober eight months wow. um, because of his health. Like, he's incredible. Like, if he can do it, I mean, he was like the one of the like mainstay folks at the camps like mm -hmm. for so many years. He was able to do that because of the relationships and the trust um, and the connections. We had a volunteer and a board member who literally drove him with his trailer to upstate New York to see his family and wow. reconnect with them. Um, and now he's there. So, I mean, you know, stability is possible for every single person. And it looks different. People have different goals for their life. Right. He wanted to reconnect with his family um, and still live a good life. Um, and he's been able to do that. And it's just, I mean, you know, I've stayed in touch with him for 14 years now, and he's a dear friend. He has nominated himself as the godfather of our toddler. <laughs> so that's Rightfully cool. so. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, you, yes, you are the godfather, yes. Um, but, um, but That's amazing. One other person, um, my friend Terry, who co-led um, the student group that we had yesterday with me, we met him when he was under Jefferson Street Bridge a couple years ago. He was, he became unhoused because of the tornado. Mm -hmm. He lost his house in the tornado, just like we did, but he didn't, I mean, he didn't have insurance. He didn't own, he was renting. Right. He lost his house and then the pandemic hit mm. and he lost his job um, because mm. all of the, so very quickly, a lot of jobs dried up. So the place he was renting said, we are not giving you any grace. Like you're out of here. And he said, well, take me to Jefferson Street Bridge. He became a leader in that community. Um, when we helped Jefferson Street Bridge organize against displacement um, and that closure, he was one of the people they nominated. He's been coming to public meetings with us. Wow. He's been leading education events with me. He's now um, at kind of a transitional housing, rapid rehousing hotel facility, mm -hmm. um, caretaking for his daughter, um, who is an adult with special needs, and he is like about to get housing. He is incredible. That's it, beautiful. Like, he is such a leader. And so many people, again, dismiss people that they see right. as 
somebody who's needy, somebody who, you know, is deficient, what right. it fill in the blank. These friends are leaders. They are. I've seen more hospitality from Smurf than anybody in a church ever. Like yeah. radical hospitality. Yeah. They, I could have. There's so many stories, but um, yeah. But immediately, those are two of the people that come to mind. Um, what what me. what advice would you give people who may easily dismiss those that they may see something the contributor, yeah. camping, um, or just from their lens may just look like they're unhoused. Yeah. Um, you know, what what advice would you give those people who, who may have those thoughts or implicit biases um, that will allow them to just kind of work on that or just give them a yeah. different lens or give them a different perspective to look at those community members? Because they still are the community members, our neighbors, um, yeah. when they see them. I mean, classism is entrenched in our society, too. It's the water we swim in. Right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, one thing I'd say is wherever you can, try to shift that mindset from judgment to curiosity, really trying to think about, you know, what has that person experienced? Right. What has got them here? What is their story? If we can shift from judgment to curiosity, that's a huge first step. And every time we're critical of someone else, every time we have those negative stereotypes, we have to wrestle with those. Right. It's classism, racism, all sexism, homophobia, all of those things have common roots mm -hmm. um, and they have to be interrogated. Mm -hmm. So um, just gently like try to shift to curiosity and that's yeah. a really nice frame to move forward yeah. with. And that's why I, I do this. Cause I'd be curious. I just be yeah. wanting to know. I just I I just be wanting to know, cause we all got blind spots, you know. Yeah. And um, I never forget like working with the contributor like just just blew my mind. Um, I can't remember the the guy's name now, but uh, one time I one day I just asked him. I was just a volunteer. So I'm like, hey, man, like how you, how did you get in this position, <laughs> you know? And uh, this changed my whole lens on like how somebody might end up in a position without housing. Mm. He said, you know, man, I got like a, a, a mathematics degree from Stanford. I said, what? <laughs> and and this is my idea of like measuring people based on education. Like, yeah. oh, you got to like, what it like? So, yeah, man, I just honestly just, I had everything that a person, I guess, materially could have and just didn't want it no more. Just I, mentally I wasn't right and. I just really want to live a more simple life and not be in a rat race. And so I gave all that up and I'm selling the contributor and I'm happy. And yeah, that's like, that's part of, I said, yep. that blew my mind. And ever since then, it was like, you never know. Never. You, you can't even assume, um, the life one has lived or could, could live and just making a choice. You know, yeah. a lot of it's circumstance, but some people are just literally making a choice. Like, mm -hmm. hey, I don't, I, this is kind of what I want to do, how I want to be, and I'm fine with it. And it blew my mind. And those, if there is a choice toward, like, living in a certain way, right. it never happens in a vacuum. So unpacking right. people's story, right. you know, and, yeah. like, being curious about that and, like, not being willing to just like I don't know put people in a bucket here right. or there. Exactly. Yeah. I kind of want to kind of want us to to close a little bit. Just I I, I got to get into this. I got to. Just the end. I have to. 
um, the faith-based part. Yes. You know, um, street chaplain. One, what does that mean? And two, um, I want to get a little bit of like how your faith has has kept you driven. And, and what does that mean for our social justice, in, which is, can, can get a little, it can be a slippery slope um, um, with faith sometimes. Um, and how do you corral and organize around that as well? Hmm. So, um, yeah, my faith has been really important to me, and it's shifted a lot over the years. And it's, I would say, like broadened a lot over the years, right? Um, at Open Table Nashville, we're an interfaith group. So um, what? So I'll talk about street chaplaincy first, I guess. I do that in an interfaith capacity, and that's really important to me. Like the first people, some of the first people I actually married as a street chaplain were Wiccan um, women. They got married on the winter solstice, like, <laughs> as a, like interfaith chaplain. Okay. But, um, you know, I went to Vanderbilt Divinity School for a Master's of Theological Studies, and I was so drawn to the caregiving work um, mm -hmm. of chaplains, how they help people in major life transitions, like um, make their own sense of things, really mm -hmm. journey with them in some of the hardest parts of their lives, and do these really important meaning-making things for the community, like burials right. and marriages and things. Well. The people on the streets, our friends on the streets, so many of them do not feel comfortable in religious institutions or mm. have been harmed by them. Mm. Specifically, our friends with the LGBTQI plus community and others. Um, so, like when they pass away, who gets who buries them with dignity, right? right. Who marries them the way they want to be married? Do they like who gives them access to these things that often to you know get that kind of holistic, emotional, spiritual care, mm -hmm. you have to have access to an institution. Right. Um, so the idea was to take that same kind of care in a holistic sense to the streets and mm. not make it, not have a gatekeeper of an institution, whether that's right. a hospital or a jail or a like church or something. Um, and to really have this kind of like interfaith ecumenical ministry of presence and accompaniment where you're deeply present mm -hmm. to the lives of people and how they're unfolding and the grief and the shame and the trauma. Mm -hmm. And also um, you accompany them in real ways. Right. And that means when they're like facing arrest at their camp right. because it's closing, then you put on your collar and you go sit with them and mm -hmm. you tell the cops, if you arrest them, you're arresting me. Mm -hmm. Like that's accompaniment. And that's that kind of like practical solidarity right. that I think we tend in the South to focus on service projects. Right. We want to see people shift from just service to solidarity mm. because that is when people put their own stuff on the line, right. learn and grow and have relationships of trust and mutuality. And that's privilege and everything. Yeah. And so I got a question. Yes. I got another question. I got, well, it's, it's two on one type of thing. You, you, and when you brought up the LGBTQ community, it made me think about this. Do you see a difference of how um, our LGBTQ community and our community of color is served in that um, unhoused space compared to their white counterparts? I mean, you're looking at Nashville, right? Um, southern <laughs> city right. that always likes to act way more progressive than it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and is steeped in 
Christian, I would say Christian supremacy. Mm. Um, so a lot of these service providers in Nashville are Christian. Right. Um, not all of them, right. but a lot of them that do work in the unhoused community. Um, like, for instance, our mission, our Nas- Nashville Rescue Mission. Mm-hmm. They have made steps in the last couple of years to be more welcoming to trans folks. Okay. That has not always been the case. Mm. And there's still a lot of folks in the, uh, and our friends in the LGBTQI plus community who do not feel safe there mm-hmm. um, and who do not feel like they can sit through a Bible service right. just to eat and just to get a bed. Wow. So I would say no people are not treated the same because mm-hmm. the service industry also is dominated. And this is the nonprofit industrial complex, right. which Open Table is a part of knowingly and trying to, we're trying to work ourselves out of a job. Right, yeah. <laughs> like we do the advocacy work mm-hmm. because we understand that so many in the service providing community prop up the need for charity mm-hmm. instead of dismantling the things that make charity necessary. Exactly. So, but so much of the service industry in Nashville is white too. Right. There is an inherent white supremacy and there is an inherent Christian supremacy in Mm. that work. So, um, so of course people are, and there are people, uh, people who are black are disproportionately represented on the streets because of all the systemic (laughs) things (laughs) that have happened from redlining to slavery to all these other issues. Right. Right. So how do you use your privilege and all of that as a white woman? to um to dismantle those things and be in solidarity which i think um is powerful and i'm and i'm glad that you said it that way because that's totally different when you're willing to give up whatever you have in order to also <laughs> go to jail uh and be away from your family um and and you know or Whatever it may be, whatever benefits and privileges that you may have, you're willing to get it up for the moment in order to be alongside your comrade in solidarity so they can also feel the support. You know, I've at our best, I've always seen Open Table Nashville as being this kind of hybrid organization mm-hmm. between service provider and movement organization. Uh-huh that can really help bring folks in the service providing community, in the faith community, into more movement spaces. Mm. Kind of be like a um, gateway nonprofit (laughs) to like, like, you know, I go into a ton of churches, I go into a ton of schools, and they're expecting some nice thing about, you know, homelessness (laughs) and statistics and housing. And we're there to radicalize and move towards solidarity and wherever they are. And so part of the privilege is whatever space we're granted mm-hmm. in, one of my roles as an educator is always trying to bring somebody who has experienced homelessness or, um, you know, who has been directly impacted right. um, to those spaces to have access. But then we radicalize people. Right. And it's a beautiful thing. And it, it really works. <laughs> so we, we get into spaces that others might not have access to. Yeah. And we call people in. Has, has there, like... What's like kind of like maybe the craziest response or like something maybe that that like you threw somebody off because like they thought like, oh, yeah, she's going to be talking about homelessness and how we need to get people housing. And like you hit them with some radical fire and they like, like what has been like a response, like a, maybe like a subliminal like type of message, like, yeah, hey, you 
probably won't be able to, be able to come back here, but, you know, type of thing. Like, oh, well, people have definitely <laughs> walked out before drinks and things, and, like, um, oh, my God, people have definitely walked oh, out. Um, that's funny. Most people are, most people are, like, pretty, like, you know, polite. You just see their eyes moving, or you see their head drop in the space, and you see them start to look around. I'm talking you to you. you. <laughs> um, but, you know, you do it in such a way... Um, that's so inviting and yeah. so disarming and right. so like you try to really um, meet them where they are and then take them that next step. So we really try to do that, but we've definitely not gotten invitations back, <laughs> but we've also gotten the people like on the inside of certain faith communities mm-hmm. who say, I can't say this in our church, but you can. Mm. So can you come do this group wow. and say these things with your friends on right. the streets? Absolutely. Yeah. So we can play that role for people on the inside right. who feel like they don't have that voice too. Personally, what has been maybe some of the challenges in you know your twenty year run at doing this work um, that you had to kind of just try to crawl, jump, scratch, or whatever you had? What what are some what are those some of those challenges like? And how did you pivot? Um. Exhaustion, mm. like complete overwhelming burnout. I mean, mm. when, like, burnout is such a serious thing. I, like, it affects every part of your life. Right. Like, when you truly burn out. And, uh, I mean, I still struggle with anxiety from some of the work that mm. I've experienced. Struggle from vicarious trauma, secondary mm. trauma mm. from the work. Um, we have to be real about how how working in spaces and working toward change in a, in a city and a system that's not wanting that change, that right. wants to remain status quo, right. how it affects people's mental health in the movement community too. Right. Um, you know, this work has completely depleted me and discouraged me and shown me the worst of humanity. And it's completely given me a purpose and been fulfilling and showed me like the absolute best in right. humanity. And so it's holding those things together, right? Yeah. And being real about how how damn hard it is. Right. Um, and how we see organizations and movement communities destroying each other. Yeah. And, like, it is so... The transformative justice approach, and I'm following people and reading people like Adrian Marie Brown right now who talks a lot about this and others, um, but that has a lot of hope for our movement communities too yeah we're who so easily destroy each other right um instead of standing in solidarity and building and and trying to transform that indoctrination of just harm and punishment like and it's so so devastating to see but i mean i've yeah it's a it's hard work to keep in but the other thing i'll say is you learn to do it in community because right. you, nobody, I cannot do this alone. You right. can't do this alone. None right. of us, the contributor, like, right. so having that community is really huge and crucial too. Um, do you have a therapist or anything? Do you? Absolutely. I have two. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm always, I'm always curious, like, how, like, because I know it's like all of those things that you're speaking, like it just, it just mentally, you yeah. know, it's a lot to, to take in and internalize and compartmentalize and like, I just think it's always it's like you're human, <laughs> like you're the superwoman, but you're human. That community, yeah, yeah. In, in like within community too, right? And like, like I just, I just, I, I, I love to see when 
like our, our amazing community of organizers and activists, like, hey, look, I need a break. Yeah. Like I need, I need, I, I need to talk to somebody to you know yeah. debrief what I'm going through because I think that just that lets the people who's looking from the outside in like, oh, like yeah, this yeah, it's he or she is just re like this is real life. This is yeah. like, just not just doing it just to be doing it for like self gratification. It's like we're really trying to help people and build community, mm -hmm. and it's tough. And we have families and we're parents and. Yeah. You know, uncles and uh, uh, aunties and, and nephew, somebody's nephew and these like like all all of that other stuff still comes with life. It does, right? And we still want to give our best selves to them as well, right? And so um, it's just always like just curious and interesting, so I can learn too on pivoting some of the other things that others are going through and how they deal with that, yeah. and just still just be able to do the work. Um, at a high level, so appreciate yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Um, two more things. One, I want to get into this book a little bit. I want to yeah. just talk about uh, praying with our feet, pursuing yeah. justice and healing on the streets. Um, just give us a little bit of like what's that about, and how can people like find that and su support it? Totally. So, um, praying with our feet came out in 2021, and it's really a um, it's a memoir and even like a spiritual memoir in some ways of the last like decade plus of working not only on the streets, but also on the front line of um, justice movements, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's whether that's housing justice or being arrested at Occupy or doing campsite defenses um, or tenants rights organizing and getting thrown out of um, slumlord apartments in Madison. Um, <laughs> there's lots of fun stories in there. <laughs> But, um, you know, this idea, um, the book is anywhere books are sold. I okay. really um, definitely love it when people go to, like, places like Parnassus or support independent mm -hmm. bookstores and buy it there whenever they can. Um, but it's a fast read. Um, it's really um, praying. The idea of praying with our feet came from a guy named Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Okay. Who was you know, he had to flee Nazi Germany and Nazi Poland, Nazi-occupied Europe when his family was being killed. He came to New York here and saw the same kind of evil, evils and segregation. Mm -hmm. So while he was marching with King um, in Alabama, he said, I felt as if our feet were praying and our mm. legs were uttering songs. Mm. Like we were not, you know, praying, or, but we were like, this was a worshiping act right. together. And what I've learned to do is to channel the faith that I have and this hope of creating a more just world, creating, you know, what King called the beloved community or what I would call today collective liberation, mm -hmm. creating those things in the here and now and working toward them long term. That's a very spiritual work for right. me. And I draw in deep wells, not only within the Christian tradition, but I also draw wisdom from other traditions too. And I'm so thankful for that. Um, but praying with our feet, that whole idea is, I have no interest right. when religion is self-serving. Mm. But when it works to, to uh, you know, in the Gospels, Mary talks about, the mother of Jesus talks about, bringing down the low, like raising up the lowly and bringing down the proud from their thrones. Mm. This kind of beautiful shit. The last right. shall be first, right? Right. When religion and faith can 
moved like that, mm -hmm. that's when I'm interested. And that's mm -hmm. when we don't just pray with our lips or with lip service to something, right. but with our whole bodies right. by embodying what we believe in, right. um, like this more just society. Um, what do you feel that our faith-based community, whether that's brick and mortar, you know, churches and different denominations, or just people who just carry that themselves um, and, and, and claim to be, you know, religious or spiritual, um, what can that community do um, to better serve communities um, just throughout the world? Because we seen, especially in the house, in the, especially in the South, that you know churches were the were the pillars of the civil rights movement yes. right um i don't know if that's the case so much anymore uh, uh, right <laughs> and so like and so you know what is what are some of the things you feel like the faith-based community can, can can improve on um in in serving you know whether it's the and the house or just Communities that are just, you know, just suffering and with poverty and, un, uh, you know, schooling and the lack of just resources being neglected. I mean, people, all people of mm -hmm. faith and conscience have a responsibility to work toward a better world for everybody in the here and now. Mm. Not just some pie in the sky when you die, right? right. Um, or some, like, different afterlife or something. Like... There's a responsibility here and now to our brothers, sisters, and siblings who are around us. Right. And when we're not using our resources, when we're not using our um, connections and our networks and our energy to bring about that, mm -hmm. um, then we're actively complicit in the right. suffering around us. Right. So, you know, so many... Uh, there's so many things I want to say to this, and I know we're wrapping up. Um, <laughs> no, get it off. You know, but, get it off. Yeah. You know, every major religion has this has this concern for the poor mm -hmm. as a core tenant in their religion. What would happen if that wasn't just turned into service, but again was turned into solidarity, mm -hmm. or was framed out with a justice analysis, mm. um, and people actually came together to not just feed the hungry, but ask why they're hungry mm. and actually start to change those systems. Mm. Um, not just by demanding more food stands, but by right. creating the gardens in which right. can grow, by the, mm. doing the land trust, by doing the housing co-ops, by doing like all these things that are gonna create um, situations where people are more free. Um, and we do see pockets of that. Again, mm. like there has always, even in the worst times of human history, during the Holocaust, there were still churches who were the underground railroad there mm -hmm. for helping like folks who are Jewish flee and right. hiding them and right. like saying, if you take them, you're taking me too and right. going to the gas chambers with them. Right. So there is this mm. role of religious communities to stand in the face of injustice and say, um, like, we're all in this together, and if you take them, you're taking me. We've forgotten that, and we've thought all those things happened in the past and aren't still happening now. Right. But there's a civil rights song, and it was actually, I think it was first a minor song, Which Side Are You On? Right. Like, which side are you on? Pick a side. There's <laughs> like, no playing in the middle. You got to pick like, a side. Like, you can't be neutral in situations yeah. of injustice. So many people have said. Yeah. Um, no, you so can't. No, no, you can't. You cannot. So, you like, can't. when... When we're not active, we're complicit. Mm. How can we, you know, maybe we have 
the resource of money. Maybe we have time. Maybe we have energy. Whatever that is for us, we've got to figure it out, mm. and we've got to contribute it to the work um, of justice. And that's one of the things we go into those communities right. to try to right. light a fire in them about. That was powerful, man. That's that's that. Wow. I want to um I want to ask you one question then I'm, I'm gonna give you the last word to close this out um, the camps um, how many how many camps do we have like in middle Tennessee area now and what can community do um, to support those camps in in, in the right way um, the healthiest way yeah. uh, holistic way for those um, community neighbors of ours that are living in those camps currently? So the last time we actually did a count was years ago. Um, okay. And it was over 200 just in Davidson County that we knew of. Mm. Um, a lot of those are smaller, right? Okay. And a lot of those have been moved further out of sight of mine. We're seeing bigger pockets in Antioch and, okay. you know, Madison, Rivergate, Donaldson, all these other pockets um, that are still within the larger Davidson County, but Goodlettsville. So we're seeing more people spread out. Okay. What it's really important to remember is that people are living in those situations because we lack affordable housing. Right. The root cause of homelessness is the lack of affordable housing. Things like inadequate wages and racist systems and structure <laughs> yeah. and all these other things go into that too. Mm -hmm. But the root cause is the lack of affordable housing. So, I mean, on a systemic level, wherever we are, advocating for housing, okay. wherever we are. Mm -hmm. Advocating for your landlords or other people to take a chance on folks, right. and give folks a chance. And then when you see people living in camp situations, to get their names, right. ask how they're doing, try to support material needs whenever you can, especially when it's hot, especially when it's cold yeah. or when the elements are bad. It's so important to take people's physical needs seriously. Mm -hmm and support where you can and to provide things like, you know, if trash is a problem, right. they don't have garbage pickup like we do. Right. So like, do you have, do they need trash bags? Right. Can you talk to public works and get a trash pickup for right. them? Like we've done that. Yeah. So like little things like that, just remembering those things. And again, being curious instead of judgmental yeah. about what people are having to go through. Um, we have a mayoral election coming up next year. Lord help us. <laughs> If if you could if you could have our mayoral candidates, or if you could ask our mayoral candidates one question, right around housing, or or oh, give them something in in mind and think about housing, what would that be? Mm. I give you a moment. Oh my God, I don't <laughs> even know. That's such a good question. I mean, I want them. Until there's housing for everybody, until they're actually having a plan that's going to build out housing at mm -hmm. capacity, I want them to come to every funeral we do, every funeral of somebody who dies on the streets. Mm -hmm. I want them to go to every camp and stay three nights in the winter and three nights in the summer and like get to know the people there and experience the conditions. I, they don't get it. They're so insulated from mm -hmm. this. And because of the mayoral turnover we've had, we don't have a plan for addressing the 50,000 plus units of affordable housing that we're going to be short of by 2030. Mm. Like 50,000 units, that's enough to fill Bridgestone Arena twice. Mm. If you think about all the people, about 20,000 people can fit in Bridgestone Arena. 
like twice plus, right? It's crazy. The 50,000 units of housing that we are short and we will be short if nothing is done. So I don't want them to pay lip service. Um, I don't want them to give us campaign promises that don't have legs mm-hmm. and feet and teeth. Um, I want them to really understand the suffering that people are facing mm-hmm. um, and change their approach and actually get shit done because <laughs> I'm so tired <laughs> Of mayors who talk about housing, and the first thing they do is come in and cut the barns fund. That's what Cooper did. Well, you know, hey, that's a fact. <laughs> and so, so yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. That I may have something different to say tomorrow, but today, hey, um, hey, I, look, I thought I would just throw it out there. You know, yeah. try to try to get my head start. <laughs> trying to figure this out. Um, look, I've enjoyed this. This has been powerful, amazing. I was excited for this. Um, as I give all my guests, you get the last word to close us out. Whatever's on your heart, whatever's on your mind, for the listeners and the viewers to just take on with them. Um, it can be around housing, it can be around just life, something spiritual, whatever you want to leave. Mm. As I'm gonna leave that to you to close mm. us out. Um, you know, there's. I've been thinking a lot about. We hear a lot about self care, but I've been thinking a lot about collective care. Mm. And what that can mean and i've been experiencing a hard time myself and um, i'm three and a half months pregnant and it's been a really rough road the last three and a half months so i've experienced people in a close community giving me care but just this reminder to take care of ourselves but take care of each other Mm -hmm. and the more we can focus on um I don't know, really caring for folks that are within our sphere, within our circle, whether that's on the median, having extra water and socks in our car for people and like preparing to see people and give care and show care. Um, or whether that's, um, you know, care and love on a macro level is equity is justice. But I've just been leaning into this collective care piece and also remembering that, You know, maybe I'm an idealist. I've been called that several times. But another world truly is possible than what is here today. And we've got to lean into those things. Got to manifest it. Yeah, so wherever people are, like, have grace and care for yourself, knowing that we're all a work in progress. We're all learning and moving all the time. And um, try to channel that toward others that we see. Well. Thank you so much for just your time and your availability. And again, a whole bouquet of flowers to you Mm. in the community that supports you and that you support. Um, Mm. Whatever we can do here at Deep Dish, you know, we, whatever, you know, I think it's going to be some very tense times coming up that we're going to have to talk some of these things out. And, um, you know, we're looking forward to be the primary place for that to happen. because it's uncut, raw, whatever you got to say, you can say it in a brave and civil space. But uh, thank you just so much for all the work that you and the community of Open Table are doing. And um, people, go support the book. Go support Open Table. Go support just our unhoused community. And uh, just thank you again for your time. And we'll do this again sometime soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's been so good. So good.